Father, our prayer now is that you would indeed show us the Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would show us the way that the psalmist hoped for his coming, and we pray that you would give us insight for our own lives. Uh, Teach us how to respond to the things that happen in our culture, and teach us, we pray, how to order our lives so that we can honor you in everything and live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask that you do this by the power of your word as your spirit works among us, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Psalm 119. We'll continue in Psalm 119 this morning. And as you turn there, um, perhaps yesterday you were watching the same... Uh, exchange that was scrolling across the bottom of my television screen as I was watching various football games. Uh, and there's this, um, this back and forth happening between uh, a significant uh, basketball star and the President of the United States. And then the President fires back, and then another basketball star jumps in. And then the President fires off about something else, and then the Commissioner of, of the NFL uh, goes after him. And then a The president fires back, and then the owners of NFL teams start going back and forth. And um, these guys, I mean, it's almost like like some of the arguments that take place between my kids sometimes. (laughs) You know, everybody's got a little corner uh, uh, on the truth, a perspective, and nobody's letting go of their own claim. And everybody's got a grievance. And it it made me think of James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. All of this division comes from a different understanding of the problem and a different understanding of the prescription for the solution and a different understanding of what kind of solution we're hoping for. And if anything is going to unite a church, it's going to be a common understanding of the same problem. And we know, don't we, that the problem that the president and the basketball stars and the NFL commissioner, the problem that they're all trying to address is really deeper. It's it's like the problem beneath the problem that they're not really uh, speaking to. So we know what the, what the problem is, and we have a shared prescription that is going to be celebrated for us in Psalm 119, a shared prescription for how the problem gets fixed, and then a shared hope. You know, our hope is not that, I mean, my hope is not that America is finally going to be able to render justice for all, and I don't believe it's going to. And my hope is not that everybody's going to finally get everything right and be able to speak to one another in in a way that's fully appropriate. Our hope is that one day a king is going to come and he is going to execute perfect justice and righteousness. And, And my hope is that that king is going to be merciful because we've repented of our sins and placed our trust and hope in him. We also, we know that the divisions arise from the lack of a shared standard and from the lack of shared allegiance, right? 
I mean, that's what part of the dispute between the president and the NFL owners is about. Where is the allegiance and how is that allegiance to be demonstrated? Well, we have a shared standard, don't we? This perfect holiness that's laid out in the scriptures. And uh, we who believe in Jesus, we have shared allegiance that transcends the temporary nation that we're a part of. And so all of this we're going to see celebrated in Psalm 119 this morning. And as we approach the section that we're looking at today, what I want to do is talk to you a little bit more about this pyramid that, that we started to look at last week. So um, uh, you, I mentioned last week I was tempted to just fly over this pyramid, but what we're going to do is we're going to climb the thing together. And we're on the front side making our way up, and there are 22... Uh, there, there, this psalm is structured according to the Hebrew alphabet. And what you've got is uh, eight-line sections that break into two four-line sections, and each eight-line section is assigned to a letter of, of the alphabet. And so last week, we looked at the A section and the B section. Every line of the first eight verses starts with A. Every line of the next eight verses starts with B and so forth. And, and there are 22 of these. Now think with me for just a minute. I know I don't like math, and I'm not much of a math whiz, but we can do this, okay? We're going to have two uh, eight-line sections at the beginning, and we're going to have two eight-line sections at the end. And then you're going to have uh, eight eight-line sections, and, then another, and that's going to be matched by another eight-line section, and then there are going to be two in the middle. Okay, so two and two uh, plus eight and eight. That's 10 on each side. That's 20. With two in the middle, that's 22, right? So this thing is carefully structured. This author, whoever put Psalm 119 together, I mean, he's built us a chiasm, right? But I'm presenting it to you like a pyramid. And we're, we're climbing up the, the front side of this thing. And uh, in the first two sections, what we saw in verses 1 through 8 is this celebration of the blessed way of life. The blessed way of life is, is the way of blamelessness. It's the way of integrity. And integrity is defined by the Scriptures. And then the next eight verses, in verses 9 through 16, the psalmist is asking, how can I have that way of life? And the answer is, I can keep my life according to your word. Now what we're going to get into in, in verses 17 through 48, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and, and we got four sections of eight here, and um, in, these, in these sections, it's remarkable the way that what the psalmist is going to do is he is going to fix his eyes on the hope. And as he fixes his eyes on the hope, he's also going to talk some about the problem. And, and this is a psalm that needs to be read against the backdrop of the rest of the Bible. Not only the rest of the Bible, but the rest of the book of Psalms. In other words, as we come to this psalm, we're not coming to a new problem that the rest of the Bible is not dealing with. And we're not coming to a new hope that the rest of the Bible is not laying out for us. This is a psalm that's very much rooted in the soil of the whole Psalter and in the soil of the whole Bible. Um, one more comment, and it, and it relates to the flow of thought. If, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me uh, saying this. Um, uh, I think that when, once we start in the, into this last section of the, psal of the Psalms, Book 5, which starts in Psalm 107, it's, it's like we're looking forward into the, the hoped-for future salvation. And it starts with a celebration of uh, redemption in 107, 2, and 3, and, and the ingathering of the exiles. So I think it's looking forward to the future act of salvation whereby God is going to bring his people home. And then we saw Psalm 108, 
is uh, picking up earlier psalms, pieces of earlier psalms, and then uh, putting them out here for us again. And it's like the life of David is being projected into the future in Psalm 108. And then did you notice that in John 17, the reading uh, that Andrew did earlier, there's a line in there where Jesus talks, he, he says, that the scripture may be fulfilled. No one, none of the disciples have been lost uh, except uh, Judas, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And if you've got a, a, a classic reference edition like I do of, of the ESV, um, there's a cross-reference there. You know what it cross-references? It cross-references Psalm 109. And we looked at Psalm 109, and that is a, a prayer against an individual enemy of the future king from David's line. So I, I think Jesus is reading the Psalms the way, that we, the way that I'm trying to read the Psalms. I'm trying to read the Psalms the way Jesus seems to have read the Psalms. And then you've got the, the conquest of the future king, from the, the triumph of the future king from David's line in Psalm 110, and then these praises in 111 through 117, followed by the entrance into Jerusalem in 118, and in 119, it's like the Torah is being established. The law of God is being established in the city of God. That to say this, this psalm is about God's people being in God's place under God's law, which is a way to describe God's kingdom. God's kingdom looks like God's people being in God's place and living in accordance with God's instructions. So let's look together at Psalm 119, and we'll, we'll start in uh, this, this section that's verses 17 through 24. Uh, this is the third section. Uh, if you're looking at an ESV like I am, you see the word gimel. That's the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet above verse 17. And um, look at what he says here in verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant. Now, this is an interesting uh, statement. And, and honestly, I'm not sure whether what the psalmist is doing is referring to himself as God's servant or perhaps referring to um, the son of David as God's servant. I think either, either one of those uh, could be a valid reading of verse 17. It, maybe there's some combination that would work for us. Deal bountifully with your servant, he says, that I may live and keep your word. Notice what he's asking for. Do good to me so that I can live and keep your word. Life consists in obeying the word of God. Life is not found in disobedience. You know what disobedience leads to? It leads to death. It leads exactly where God said it would go. In the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And our problem, every one of us in this room, our problem is we think if I disobey, I'll have a better life. That's why we do it. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, deal bountifully with me that I may live and keep your word. He's asking God for life so that he can obey. This is, this is a prayer that every one of us needs to pray. And then he says in verse 18, this is just moving in the same direction. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He wants to see. He, he's assuming, isn't he, that in the Torah, in the law, there are wondrous things. He recognizes that the problem is not that the Bible is boring. The problem is I can't see it. I can't understand it like I need to. So open my eyes so that the Bible, 
will be more exciting to me than these things that distract me from it. Verse 19, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. This language of sojourner, he's a temporary resident. He is not expecting to be here forever. His hopes are not in this life, and his hopes are not in some temporary earthly kingdom. His hopes are in that future kingdom that I would suggest he's, he's looking for. And then verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules, or you could say your judgments. Um, they've got a footnote in the ESV that says, or your just decrees at all times. If we take this as judgments or just decrees, we could say, Lord, my soul is consumed for your justice to be enacted at all times. And every one of us feels that, right? Every one of us, we, we see problems in our society, we see problems in the world, we see wicked people getting away with wicked things, and what we, what we feel is God caused your standards to be upheld. And that's, that's what the psalmist is saying here. Notice how in verses 17 through 20, everything deals with him personally. Deal bountifully that I may live, open my eyes, I'm a sojourner, my soul. Everything is about him personally. That's that first four-verse section. In the next four-verse section, in verses 21 through 24, the problems are external. The problems are outside. He's going to deal with enemies. And, and as we think about the Psalms, we know who the enemies are, don't we? This goes all, all the way back to Psalm 2. It goes all the way back to Psalm 1, if you think about it. Because Psalm 1 opens, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And what he's going to describe here is the scoffers in verses 21 through 24. And these are the same guys in the psalmist's worldview who in chapter 2, Psalm 2, 1 through 3, have gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed, his king. So he says in verse 21, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones. Now, if we read it that way, if we read him as speaking of the way that the Lord rebukes the insolent, accursed ones, do you know how Psalm 2 speaks to this? Do you remember, you remember how Psalm 2 goes? The kings, they've, they've gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then it says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his, in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and then he goes on to talk about how he's installed the future king from David's line on Zion, his holy hill. I think that's what the psalmist has in mind. God is going to rebuke the insolent, accursed ones just in the way that he does in Psalm 2. Jesus is the king. You need to bow to him. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. So the psalmist is feeling scorned by the culture, and he's feeling contempt from the culture because of his obedience to God's word. I think this is something that believers today can identify with. And he's wanting that removed because God's law, God's judgments will be enacted. Then verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me. And here, we're right back in Psalm 2, 1 through 3 again. 
The, the, the rulers of the earth, they gather together. The, the scoffers are seated, Psalm 1-1, and, and they, they've, they've gathered against the Lord and against his anointed. And his response here in verse 23 is, your servant will meditate on your statutes, which brings in Psalm 1, doesn't it? Uh, Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then he says in verse 24, your testimonies, God's testimonies. The Bible is often spoken of in Psalm 119 as God's testimonies. And, and I think we should receive this as the Lord testifying to us. So he says, your testimonies are, are my delight. Then he says, they are my counselors. Rend rendered literally, you could say, your testimonies are my delight, the men of my counsel. So God's word, the psalmist is saying, the scriptures, he says, they're the men of my counsel. I don't know about you, but, but in my own life, anytime I run into a difficulty, um, I, I will often reach out to people I trust. I will often, uh, if, I, if something comes up in my life, uh, it is not unlikely that I will be on the phone with Denny Burke or Matt D'Amico or maybe my dad. These are the men of my counsel. And, and what the psalmist is saying is, your testimonies are my delight. They are the men of my counsel. This is, this is who we want to be. When, when we run into difficulty, we want our minds to be reinforced by the Scriptures. We live in a grievance culture. That's where we live. And every one of us needs to have our hearts instructed by the Scriptures. Every time we feel aggrieved or every time, every time we run into people feeling aggrieved, we need to go back to the truth of the Scriptures. And we need to measure the grievances we feel or the grievances somebody else is feeling against the Scriptures. And then what we want to do is we want to identify with, our, identify with and align with those with whom we have a shared explanation of what's wrong and a shared expectation for, for what God is going to do. So I would urge you, as an application of verses 17 through 24, to make sure that the Scriptures are the men of your counsel, that, that the Scriptures are your delight. And then I would also say this. Notice how uh, in verses 21 through 24, read against the rest of the Psalter, the insolent, accursed ones are, are not the people doing something that the culture perceives as unrighteous, like upholding uh, biblical virtues or something like this. I mean, the culture perceives that as unrighteous today. Uh, rather, they're the people who are rejecting God and His Messiah. We, we need to have our allegiances and our understanding of who's in the right and who's in the wrong, who's on our team and who's not on our team. We need to have all that informed by the Scriptures. So, so, so the question for us is, is the Bible shaping the way that we see the world. This next unit, um, the psalmist in verses 25 through 32, he seems to turn from prayers um, that deal with what he wants God to do for him and how he wants God to respond to his enemies um, to um, his, his own soul in verses 25 through 32. So look at how verse 25, my soul, verse 28, my soul, and then, and then he's going to appeal to the Lord to, to do things that he needs for his soul. And really, the, what he needs is this. Look at, look at verse 25. 
My soul clings to the dust. The word translated clings there is the same word that you have in Genesis 2.24. When um, the Bible says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then what he's saying here, my soul clings to the dust. I think we should read dust against Genesis also. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust communicates death. My soul, he's saying, cleaves to things that are going to bring about death. He's recognizing his own worldliness. Again, this is in an ironic kind of a way, this is tremendously encouraging to us. This is a man just like us. This is somebody who has the same sort of temptations that we deal with. Even though he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, even though he's writing scripture, he's honestly saying, my soul cleaves to the dust. But then look at verse 31. This is where he wants to get to. I cling or I cleave to your testimonies. So, so you see the, the contrast, right? He's, he's, he starts out feeling like he's clinging to the dust, but then as he prays, he's going to cling to God's testimonies. How's he going to get there? Look back at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Everybody that sins dies spiritually. We have all sinned. The wages of sin is death. Everybody in this room has experienced spiritual death. If you're an unbeliever here sitting, sitting here this morning, the, the good news for you is that God, by the power of His Spirit, working through His Word, can give you spiritual life. If you'll just pray what the psalmist prays here. My soul clings or cleaves to the dust. Give me life according to your word. God can make you alive. And you will find that, yeah, you've got, you, you've got a, an appetite for things that are going to kill you. But God will break that chain. He will liberate you from that. He will give you a new appetite for holy things. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And then he says in verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. And then he cries out, teach me your statutes. We saw this at the end of verse 12, teach me your statutes. And we're going to see it again as we, as we cross Psalm 119. There's also going to be an emphasis in this little section, verses 25 through 32, on uh, the, the way or the ways. So we just see there in verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. He recognizes his ways are wrong. He wants God to give him new statutes, new ways. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Notice the emphasis on meditation here. Back in verse 23, Though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. You will not exhaust the Bible. You, you will not uh, come to the end of what you can learn from the Bible. You will not reach its deepest depths. There will, there will always be more for you to meditate on. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. It's like he's saying, the more I understand about what you teach, Lord, the more I'm going to want to meditate on it. The more I'm going to want to think about it. 
Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. This is, this is, we can, it is so easy to identify with this guy, isn't it? it? Every one of us feels sorrow. Every one of us is going to face sorrow. And the Bible is giving us a prescription for dealing with it. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 29. So for, uh, first uh, four verses there, 25 through 29, he's dealing with his soul, right? He starts with his soul in verse 25. He ends with his soul in verse 28. It's like he's describing his condition. Uh, I'm clinging to the dust. Uh, I told of my ways. I need understanding. My soul is melting. Now, in, in verses 29 through 32, it's like he's going to say, here's the prescription that I need to follow. Here's my, here's my set of steps that I need to follow to get better. Verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law or your Torah. Torah. So he's crying out to the Lord that the Lord would put deceptive, uh, um, deceitful ways far from him. He's asking the Lord to fix him. Make me a truth speaker. Make me someone who, who can be trusted. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Then he says in verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. And what's, what's beautiful about the Bible is that there's a both and between God's part and our part, right? We need God to make us alive. We also need to choose. God can make you alive by his word. You also need to decide, I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to commit myself to Jesus. I'm going to choose the way of faithfulness. That's what I'm going to do. And both elements are here, aren't they? Verse 25, give me life according to your word. Verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. There, there, many of us, many of us need to start practicing the volitional choice of setting God's judgments, his rules, his just decrees before us and having that inform how we respond to things. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. And then there's this, this optimistic and hopeful statement in verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Uh, this makes me think of uh, that, that scene at the end of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia when C.S. Lewis describes those children taking off and, and they begin to run. And, and the difference with this running is they feel all the joy and the pleasure of the physical activity and they feel no weariness. And they feel no fatigue. And they do not feel winded. And there is this, this glad-hearted freedom in running. That's what the psalmist is saying here. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You make my heart what it needs to be, and I will have pleasure in obedience. Uh, the next two sections, um, what he does in verses 33 through 40 and 41 through 48, is he seems... He seems to focus even more clearly on the deliverance that, that he's looking for God to accomplish. Um, in, in verses 33 through 40, um, there, there, are, there are eight lines here. The first seven lines are all imperatives addressed to the Lord. Every, 
In other words, uh, seven of the eight lines start with commands that, that, that's, that the psalmist addresses to the Lord in the form of, of prayers. And um, it's, it's not uncommon for the Bible to present people praying, uh, commanding God to do things. That's exactly what you have in the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, give us this day our daily bread. That, that, that's, a, that's a command and so forth. Look at what he wants. Verse 35, lead me. Verse 36, incline, I'm sorry, I should have started in verse 33. Teach me. Verse 34, give me understanding. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments. And then verse 36, incline my heart. What he's doing is he's, he's commanding God to do the kind of teaching in him and for him. So he's wanting God to be his, God to be his teacher, which there's a point of application for us there. As we look at the scriptures together, God is our teacher. I'm, I'm just trying to bring out what the psalmist has written. I'm just trying to exposit what the psalmist has said because the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to say this and God wanted God's people to know this. So God is our teacher here. And he said, he, what he's wanting is the kind of instruction that results in obedience. The kind, this is a kind of instruction that doesn't just lead to, to more and more knowledge. This is the kind of instruction that, that results in holiness. Um, so, so look at what he says. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. If you teach me, I will obey to the end. And then he, verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. This is an understanding that unites all of the compartmentalized and broken pieces of his heart so that he wants to heed and obey what God has, has said. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. There is, there is pleasure that this psalmist is talking about. Look back at verse 34, your, or 24, your testimonies are my delight. There's pleasure in understanding the Bible. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 35, lead me in, in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. And then all this culminates in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. He doesn't want the kind of of gain that comes through deceit, that comes through uh, adulterous behavior, that comes through underhanded business practices. He wants righteous, holy pleasure. Um, what, he's, what he's praying for really is what Martin Luther described as theology that has hands and feet. Theology that has hands and feet. In other words, you know these things and you live them out. You enact them. They come out through your hands and, and they come out in your feet as you walk the righteous path. Uh, this is why we've, we've started or we're starting, we're moving toward this, this Tuesday morning men's theology group that we're going to um, have a kickoff effort at, at the men's camp out. We're trying to have theology that has hands and feet, theology that will, that will result in Christ-like, holy, righteous servant leaders. So these first four verses are all about um, this teaching that's going to result in uh, obedience. And the next four verses, 
seem to be about the removal of obstacles, obstacles to uh, this kind of obedience. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life. Notice how he keeps asking for life. We we saw it in verse uh, 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust, give me life. Now again in verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. There's an there's this concept that people talk about when they discuss economics. It's, it's opportunity cost. It's the idea that if you choose to do one thing, you're choosing not to do this other thing. So uh, last, last night, um, uh, Luke had a friend over yesterday afternoon, and this guy's dad, this, uh, Luke's friend's dad, came to pick him up. And um, I chose um, to, to sit there and talk with him, and it made it so that I couldn't weed eat the lawn. It also made it so that we were about an hour late going to dinner, uh, which my family was not all that pleased with, but um, there was an opportunity cost there, right? I, I chose to do one thing, and it meant I couldn't do these other things. We need to recognize that if we choose to set our eyes on worthless things, we are not delighting in the path of God's commandments. We are not meditating on God's wondrous works. And, and we ought to pray this way. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Notice the contrast. God's ways or worthless things. What do you want to be at the end of the age? Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be at the end of your life? How do you want to be at the end of your life? What you spent your life doing is going to determine who you are. Worthless things Or God's ways. In verse 38, he says, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Now, in view of the the things he's going to say, starting right here, um, I think he's talking about the promise in 2 Samuel 7 about the future king from David's line that's reiterated in Psalm 2 about uh, the future king from David's line. I think he's talking about God's promise that he's going to establish his king, that he's going to save his people, and that he's going to give them fullness of life under the reign of the Lord Jesus. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. That reproach is coming from these these authorities of the world, verse 23, the princes, these people who have authority that are plotting against God and his Messiah and God's people, the ones bringing the reproach. And and the psalmist wants God to remove that reproach. And then he says in verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. This vein of thought just continues into verses 41 through 44. He says in verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Uh, as, As Paul says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. There is one salvation that God has accomplished in Jesus. There is one heaven. There's not some other God with some other Christ and some other heaven and some other new heavens and new earth. When the psalmist is talking about God's salvation according to God's promise as an expression of God's steadfast love, let your steadfast love 
come to me, your salvation. He's talking about the salvation in Christ, the, the hoped for uh, future salvation that God will accomplish through the king from David's line. And he says in verse, verse 42, if you'll do this, verse 41, then, verse 42, I shall have an answer for him who taunts me. And the taunting in verse 42 is the same as the reproach in verse 40, 39. The same Hebrew word is behind those two, those two statements. So if God will remove the reproach by giving victory to his king, well, his people are going to be ready to answer those who reproach them. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus does make the rules. And we're not the ones who are unrighteous for upholding the rules that Jesus has put in place. Verse 42, I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Uh, the trust that he explicitly articulates here breathes through every petition in this psalm that is so saturated with celebration of what God says. This trust, I mean, he, he comes right out and says it here, but it's really, it's pervasive, the, the trust that the psalmist feels in God's word. Verse 43, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules or your judgments. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And then in verses 45 through 48, he's going to talk about the results of this of this obedience and God giving him life and God bringing salvation through his king. Verse 45, then I shall walk in a wide place. And I noted last week that that reference to the wide place in verse 45 is similar to the, what he asks when he says, when you, or when he says in verse 32, when he says, when you enlarge my heart, when you make my heart wide. So the, pa the path of God's commandments is a wide place and he wants a heart that corresponds to God's commandments. I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. The psalmist is not saying, you know, I, I wish the Bible didn't teach that. I, I, had a, I had a theology teacher one time, and, and he was talking about, about original sin in such a way that I finally raised my hand in class and said, sir, it sounds like you're saying you know the Bible teaches original sin, but you really wish, wish it didn't. And he said, yeah, that's about right. And, and you get this from, from people, not just about original sin, you get this from people about what the Bible says about man and woman about what the Bible says about, about human sexuality, it, it pervades our culture. The psalmist's attitude is, I love your commandments. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about bibliolatry. Look at what the psalmist says here in verse 47 and 48. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. He is not committing bibliolatry. Because what animates his delight in God's instruction, his delight in God's word is the fact that this tells him who God is. This tells him how God is. So he's, he's worshiping God by his righteous response to the Scriptures, which indicates that if you don't like the Scriptures, you don't like God. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. As I thought about this psalm, 
Uh, I read this article this week that makes me want to say, in response to this psalm, be like Aldi. Some, some of us, uh, well, I don't shop at Aldi. I don't do any shopping, and Jill doesn't shop at Aldi, but I know some of you in this room uh, shop at Aldi. There's a fascinating article this week that I read about Aldi, and um, uh, what, it, what it reveals is that it's actually a, a relatively secretive company. They don't, uh, they, they don't do media advertising. I'm reading from this article. They don't publish their financial statements, and, and the article goes into the way that they get around having to publish their financial statements. They, they broke the, com- the company up into um, these sort of fraction-sized bits so that even though it's a massive company, um, they don't have to reveal their, their, informations, their information, and their top executives don't give interviews. So they don't talk about their strategy. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal did all this investigation, and they, they sort of got behind the curtain. And what they, what they found was that after World War II, um, these two brothers, uh, they got to Carl and Theo Albrecht, and the, the name Aldi comes from uh, the, the last name Albrecht combined with discount. So it's like Aldi, you know, Albrecht discount. Um, they got together, and they decided that, that in this in this war-torn Germany, they were going to keep their, their products limited in terms of what they offered. So back then, uh, the article says, their stores offered just 250 items, the essentials that miners and steel workers would need to survive. Flour, sugar, coffee, butter, bacon, peas, condensed milk. That's all they sold. And, and the article describes the way that most Aldi stores stock between 1,300 and 1,600 items depending on the company, or the country. By comparison, Walmart supercenters have, they carry around 120,000 items. So what they're doing is they're deliberately limiting what they sell. And one of their executives, retired, who gave an interview, remarked, nobody needs 50 different types of toilet paper. And, and, and then they, you know, they, it talks about how Fewer items means faster turnover, smaller stores, less rent, lower energy costs, and fewer staff to stock the shelves. So they're keeping their costs down, they're keeping their product limited, and then their their sales are going crazy. Now, what do I mean when I say I want you to be like Aldi? You've got all these possibilities. You've got all these ways that you could spend your life. You've got all this stuff that you could fritter your life away upon. There are 120,000 things that you could do with the little windows of time that you have to read the scriptures, to pray, to meditate on God's word. And what I'm saying to you is be like Aldi. Make a choice to limit what you take in and and make sure that you've got the, the miners and steel workers essentials butter, flour, sugar. And what I'm talking about is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who knows that they don't know You, and they've heard that that Your people pray things like, give me life according to Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would prompt their hearts that the Holy Spirit would give them a desire to know you, that you would make it clear in their minds that you are just and you are righteous and you are going to punish every transgression. And Lord, I pray that they would feel the depth of their need.
And I pray that they would understand what we've read and what we've sung and what we've said in this sermon, which is that you put the Lord Jesus forward to accomplish salvation. That he lived a righteous life and then he died an atoning death and then he rose from the dead because he was victory over sin and over death. And Lord, I pray that you would save them. And Father, for, the, for those of us who believe, those of us who know you, I pray that you would help us to order our ways in accordance with your word. I pray that you would keep us from wasting our lives on worthless things. Give us delight, we pray, in the scriptures. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.